0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Contractor Evolution. Returning to the show today is David C. Bentall, former CEO and president of Dominion Construction, the founder of Next Step Advisors, and a professor of family enterprise at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. You'll remember him from a few weeks back where we talked all about succession planning. Now, David just authored his third book, Dear Younger Me, Wisdom for Family Enterprise Successors, which we'll link below. And in today's conversation, we really zoom in on, we really focus on the nine transformational leadership traits that he outlines in this book, which is worth a read, by the way. So check that out. In today's conversation, you can expect to learn a few things. Why the AI revolution will put an even greater premium on critical thinking skills, how curiosity can and will drive innovation in your business and why being impatient with your organizational growth always backfires. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's dive in. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. David, welcome back to the show, man. It's good to see you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again.
0: So you wrote this book, Dear Younger Me, which is a pretty compelling title. Like it definitely gives the reader the idea of what this is about. I want to (laughs) do-over. Right, right. So so can you maybe just... uh, can you maybe just share why you wrote this book and, and, and what it's about for you?
1: Benji, I mentioned it was, I want to do over. What happened was I was on an airplane flying back from Alberta and I'd been at a family client meeting in Saskatchewan and then a subsequent different family meeting in, in uh, Alberta, each with different families. Mm -hmm. And I'd prepared well diligently for both meetings. I thought I'd Done my job to help lead these two family meetings. They would both gone very badly. Oh, and okay. I and I was kind of licking my wounds as I was on the airplane. I was thinking about what happened, and I and I was thinking about how in one of the meetings, one member of the next generation, a successor like me, I felt that that person had been quite impatient, mm. and that that kind of had spoiled the broth for mm. the that that family meeting had gone in the ditch because of this person being impatient. And then I thought, well, what will happen the other the other meeting? Well, the other meeting. One member of the family had been wounded, had been hurt by something that happened earlier on and, and was harboring some unforgiveness towards sure. another member of the family. And that kind of spoiled everything. And I am thinking, yeah, I guess maybe it wasn't my fault. It was these next gens who were wrecking things. Sure. And I remember thinking, I'm sure glad I wasn't like that. Or and then you what, thought about or it. was I? And I realized I was impatient. I realized that I was lacked. I lacked forgiveness. And I got out of the scratch pad and I started making notes. I, I lacked humility. I lacked patience. I lacked, gosh, I lacked gratitude. I lacked curiosity. I didn't listen to anybody. So I realized pretty soon I had realized uh, through that process, uh, probably eight or ten areas where I had been a problem, right? And so I want to write to the next gens and say, Hey guys, you can make the same mistakes I made or you can learn. So why don't we, what we do have a do over for everybody.
0: This is in essence a 300 page letter to yourself.
1: Yeah. With I'm hoping other sources. people will read it.
0: Right, right. Now the 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 subtitle to it is Nine Character Traits to Transform Your Leadership. And these are traits that you have learned through your own lived experience and now written about in this book that you feel make a massive difference. Uh really move the needle to someone's yeah, ability yeah. to to lead effectively. So what I wanted to do today, I thought it would just be neat to kind of go through all nine, right, which seems right. like a lot to cover, but we'll just do we'll just do quick hits on each. And so I'm gonna, I'll maybe read off the trait can that I I've just, taken from the just chapter. Write out, can sure. I write off the
1: top just interrupt and say that for those who are listening, if you, if any of these traits—humility, curiosity, listening—if anyone on the on the, the call here feels that they're lousy at these things, I just want—I'm to, in the remedial class. That's why I've, that's why I've written about them. So I'm
0: not an expert you're, on any of the. Thank <laughs> you for saying that. You're not, you're not, you're not claiming to have this all no, figured I,
1: out. I've written the book because I was, I was, was lousy at all these. Maybe still am, but I'm working on it.
0: It's a good segue into the first trait, which is humility. And you've just exemplified some yourself. There's also these really great quotes at the start of each of these chapters, which I'll read. So it's humility. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's it's just thinking of yourself less. So so how do you define it in your own words? And then and then uh, maybe I'll tack on to that. Why do we resist it? Why is it so challenging?
1: Well, I think most of us think about humility uh, um, when we see it... Uh, a lack of it. We, we so let's talk about it in terms of what it isn't, right? Because we we know people who are arrogant, egotistical, we, egotistical, mm-hmm. abrasive, and so we can we can spot a lack of humility a mile away. And I think at its worst, humility is that it's arrogance, it's self assertiveness, inflated self confidence, and so that's what it is at, at, at its its worst. In its opposite, so what is how do we cultivate something that's the opposite of that? How do we do? We become weak. Mm. Do we become self-critical? Mm. That, that doesn't sound like a very good thing. So that's why I love this quote from C.S. Lewis: that it's that humility is not thinking poorly about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not thinking about ourselves so much all the time. It's not thinking about yourself. And i just interested. You know, I'm a competitive water skier, as you know. So I was at the lake this morning, and I needed to get back here in time for our. Um, recording recording and one of the guys was in the water it was his turn and he and i said do you want to do, do, do you want to do another pass and he said well, how about you do you have time to drive me one more pass before he, he was in the water it should be it should have been about him right. right here's a guy who had humility Really, it's being un- humility is about being unselfish. Mm-hmm. It's making life not all about me. And I remember one person said to me that a person completely absorbed in themselves makes a pretty small package. Mm-hmm. And so I think humility is about being other-centered. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you um, observed what humility does for leadership and inversely, what a lack of it does for leadership and, and the organizations that it exists within?
1: Well, not all that much because we got a lot of leaders. (laughs) who are full of themselves, right? So you don't, it's actually, you don't see it all that much, right? So I just need to say, we don't have a lot of good examples, but let's talk about Benjamin Franklin who's inspired me in this area. Now, people might know of Benjamin Franklin as one of the founding fathers, Mm -hmm. but they might not know that he was an entrepreneur, right? Uh, Benjamin Franklin started the U.S. Post Office. He was an inventor, he he invented bifocals. He, He was a brilliant man in many, many ways. And he decided to pursue humility. Mm. He decided it was one of his items that... Actually, one of his friends told him he needed to add it to, to, because he said one of his friends said, Ben, it's all about you all the time. Right. And so he realized that it was a weakness in his life. And so one of the ways he decided to pursue it, and I think this is great practical advice for all of us, Benjamin Franklin made the statement, I listened to an audio version of his biography, and when he said, I decided... To deny myself the privilege of ever disagreeing with anyone, I had to rewind the audio tape. Yeah, why is that a privilege? I decided to deny myself the privilege. Well, we all like to tell other people that they're wrong,
0: hundred percent. So he it's said, "One of life's great pleasures." That's
1: right. And he said, "I decided to deny myself the privilege of ever disagreeing with anyone." And it was really funny. I got got in a, <clears throat> got in the car with my wife, listening to this. And afterwards, I said to her, "Sweetheart, I want you to help me with this because I I would like to become like that." So we got dressed for dinner, we got in the elevator. And we're going down the elevator and some friends of ours got in the elevator with us and they pressed the second floor. Mm. And I knew that to get to the restaurant, we needed to go to the ground floor because you couldn't get there at the second floor. And I said, we can't get there from there. He said, no, no, wait, second floor, of the elevator, the restaurant's on the second floor. I said, no, you can't get there from there. And my wife elbows me because I'm right. right. Right away, I'm disagreeing yeah. with this. It lasted last said about five minutes. Last, less than. Yeah. And my, the first other first living human being I saw after listening to this, and immediately with my wife's helpful correction, I said, "I could be mistaken. Let's go down to the ground floor." You know what the response from this friend was? What. I could be mistaken. Mm. Let's go down to the ground floor, like you said. It, immediately, we avoided a conflict, right? Which would have just been about ego, which is so. I, I've worked, I've been working at this bench. I'm. i as I said in the beginning. I'm in the remedial class. But
0: what works? What has worked for you? Besides, you know, you got some. You got some advice from your wife. What else is there? A practice. Is there a prayer? Is there a meditation? Is there reading? What else works to cultivate more of this within ourselves?
1: So the the first thing I think that cultivates humility for us is if we can begin to recognize that we are selfish and self-centered. so we, so, so it, it's, it's an acknowledgement that that's where we start from. So we act, it's actually a very natural thing for all of us to be self-absorbed. So the first thing we need to recognize it's in all of us to be that way. You know our son, when he was two, we gave him cheerios and i can still remember him throwing them all on the ground in the in the dining room and we said son would you please you not, not would you please <laughs> not do that and he said no we didn't train him to be defiant, selfish, self-centered, but that's... So I think that the, the, the first... It's thing, baked in. It's baked in. Yeah. So we're all, we, th- this is natural. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge this is part of how we all came into this world. So th- we need to acknowledge that. And then secondly, recognize it's, it's going to take work. Benjamin Franklin actually had a little black book, and it wasn't with, pe- with women's phone numbers. It was he kept track every day. Mm. Of when he messed up with his quest to be humble and mm-hmm. other things. So I think we need to, number one, recognize it's natural. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's going to take work. But number three, it's begin to focus on others mm-hmm. and to try and live that way. So, whatever you take. So, for me, all of our listeners, I would say get to know Benjamin Franklin,
0: study the guy. What does it do for an organization, for employees, for teams, for divisions in a company when, when a leader or a leadership group truly practices humility?
1: Well, I'm wearing my Fluvog shoes today. I, t- I, t- I talked to Adrian Fluvog about that very question. I said, Adrian, you know, your dad started this company. Uh, it, it, does humility make any difference? And he said, yes, yeah, it's made a huge difference in our company. And I said, how has it made a difference? And he said, my dad was a humble leader. And so he would ask our employees what they thought we should do or what the next product we should do or what innovation they could come up with for a new product. And because he was humble in his relationships with them, they developed mutual respect. Mm. Because they developed mutual respect, they were able to have open conversations. Mm. Because they had open conversations, people could have the courage to share their ideas. And Fluvog shoes are full of innovation. You know what Adrian said? He said, humility is one of our competitive advantages yeah. because it helps us to get new ideas. And you know, on a global scale, the, the, the one of the leaders of, from the Michelin Tire family, Edouard Michelin, he went walking through the plant one day and he came across some lowly employee who was working in the print shop. And the guy had a weird object on his desk. And he said, what's that weird object on your desk? He said, oh, it's a slide rule i made up to calc- do my calcs. And he said, so what is that about? And he explained it to him. And he thought, this young man is too brilliant to be in the print shop. We got to get him in our R&D department. Put him in the R&D. Guess what he came up with? Mm,
0: something else genius.
1: Radial tires. Right. That's why Mislin Tire became the global leader in radial tires, because the leader of the company had the humility to ask one of his employees, what are you up to?
0: That I'm sold on humility. Uh, the next one you mentioned, number 2 is curiosity. And the 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 quote that you had on this one which I love. The wise man doesn't give the right answers, he poses the right questions. That's the quote. What happens to organizations when leaders lack curiosity? You just had the example of Michelin, so that's a really good example. Anything else you'd want to build on that when when if when we're just we, we're not we're not practicing inquiry. We're not asking a ton of uh, insightful questions. We're not digging. We just kind of Think we got it all already?
1: When we think we've got it all already, we, we lack here. so we become complacent mm. and lazy. And if we are complacent and lazy, guess what happens to continuous improvement? The kaizen, mm. it all it all disappears. If we if we know how to do everything, why would we need to be curious about doing it differently? So it, it, the, the the drive for continuous improvement, the the drive for excellence, right? The relentless pursuit of excellence all disappears if we. If we lack curiosity, and you know, I, I love to. In, in my book, I've tried to talk about different um, virtual mentors for me. So Benjamin Franklin was is my mentor for sure, for humility. So Einstein is my mentor when it comes to curiosity. He said, "I'm not particularly brilliant." I, I think I think he's mistaken there. He said, "I'm not particularly brilliant. I just am. I'm just." Pretty curious. Actually, I think he used a a more exaggerated. He said, "I'm just relentlessly curious." Right? He just kept asking.
0: This one really hits home for me. I um, I think you know I I have a lot of weaknesses, uh, but one thing that I do think is a strength is I am. uh, I am a very curious person, and I did this exercise a couple years ago where I actually sat down and I wrote down core values for myself. Like I, I sat, I was just, I, I had some stuff bubbling away and I sat down and I thought and I wrote, and one of them was, was this, you can tell me what you think of it. It's number one core value for Benji. Be interested, be interesting. So there's some subtext here. Be fascinated by the world and by other people. Let curiosity take you where it wants to take you. If something piques your interest, explore it with zeal. Read books, try new food, travel, listen to weird music, start new hobbies, all for the sake of it. If it interests you, do it. When you spend time with other people, be deeply interested in them. Ask them questions listen to their stories and always be present. People yearn to feel seen and understood. And one of your gifts uh, is the ability to give that to them. Do these things and you will always be the most interesting person in the room. So my point is, I think in in a culture, in a climate, in a world where people are always trying to be cool, be this, be that, come off a certain way, I think people sleep on um, how powerful it is to just truly focus in on the, the, the people they're around and and be practice inquiry with them, particularly when you think about needing to influence or needing to persuade or needing to lead people. It's not the compelling language that you put together. It's not how persuasive your slides are. It's not, um, it's, it's not any of the things that people think it is when you're trying to get stuff done and you're trying to move stuff across the finish line. It's, it's preempting all that with just, I want to know who you are and what you're interested in, what you're about. And then later, when you do need to actually ask for the work to get done, that ask is so much easier because they felt that in return already.
1: Yeah. So I could go a hundred different directions. And The first I want to go is that my father, uh, when I was moving back to Vancouver, I, uh, my father was a great salesman. And, and uh, when I was moving back to Vancouver, I asked several people, um, for lunch as I was trying to get reacclimatized with the city. And several people who knew my dad said, what a great privilege it is for you to come back and work with your dad. And I, I was looking forward to that. And these individuals, including Bill Sauter, the, who the business school at UBC is named after, and the founder of, of um, Collier's, John McLernan, they all said, uh, these four different individuals all said, you know, your dad's the best salesman I've ever met. And so I studied my dad, like what made him a great salesman. And the reason I studied him It was because he didn't see himself as a salesman. Mm. He didn't. He felt salespeople were always trying to trick people to buy stuff when they shouldn't be. And so my dad didn't, he said, David, don't become a salesman. But these men are all saying my dad was the best salesman I ever met. And what I discovered as I studied my dad is he was insanely curious. He'd have lunch with people and say, Benji, tell me about your family. Tell me about your your business. What do you see going on in the world today? He would start and then eventually we get to how can we help? Right. So my dad just naturally cared for people. And it was fascinating because it, you notice I say cared for people. Mm-hmm. What is caring for people? It, it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, you were, I think, you know, in your earlier qu comment talking about humility. What happens if we don't have it? let's we'll talk about curiosity and not having it. What are the consequences of not having that in a business?
0: You don't innovate. You don't learn that much. You don't have very much influence over your people because well, and, they don't care. Because you don't care about them. Well,
1: and worse, you can destroy your relationships. Yeah. Like my uncle, <clears throat> who was president and CEO of the business, I thought I knew better than him. So rather than trying to learn from him, I started telling him what to do. Notice how my dad was asking I thought selling growing up, I thought selling was telling. A lot of of us think selling is telling. Here's how we can help you. Selling is asking Mm -hmm. what do you need. Mm -hmm. And so I I ruined my relationship with my uncle because I was so busy telling him how I could help the company. Mm -hmm. So had I had a modicum of curiosity and asking my uncle, what do you think we need to do, that would have made a difference. And when I talked earlier about me being in the remedial class last weekend, I'm on the trail on Keats Island walking with my wife and we got a, a guest visiting with us. And she said, so tell me about Keats Island and how did you end up with the place here? Well, I started talking about my grandpa buying the 250 acres and I talked about, I was I was off to the races talking about my dad and my grandpa, and blah, blah, blah. And my wife was holding my hand. She started squeezing my hand. I went, why is she squeezing mm-hmm. my hand? Mm-hmm. And I she did it about eight times till I finally stopped talking and said, so... Um, Tell tell me about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it, it, we we it, it's it's we just need to flip the switch. The other thing I think is sort
0: of interesting. I'll just comment on this quickly before I move on to the next. With curiosity, I'm a fan of just letting it roll organically. Meaning, be curious in the things that you find interesting in the first place. Because I've noticed. And you would be able to speak to this more than me, but like what happens just when you continuously do it is a most mosaic starts to come together of and you start to see patterns between wildly discon like yes, yes. disconnected things. So learning how to cook has weirdly made me like better in business. Yeah. And um being well traveled and taking trips and that has made me, you know, a better partner. Like there's just certain you start to see that um you don't need to like read the prescribed books list that your business influencer on Instagram said to read, and that's what's going to make you smart. You you could do that if you you'll follow
1: if, your net. Follow your natural I, I'm puroses. saying
0: follow. Yeah, what smells good? What tastes good? Just do that, and before you know it, you'll start to see like the mosaic piece together, and all this stuff start to influence each other in a really kind of beautiful and more. Uh, It's like a broader kind of intelligence. It's it's more widely researched. So I just think, you know, when in doubt, just just follow what you think is cool. And
1: I, we talked about my competitive water skiing. I took up competitive skiing when I turned forty. As I have been pursuing this sport, yeah, I'm becoming a better coach, right? A better family enterprise advisor. Because I am pursuing excellence in a field that I'm passionate
0: about. Did you think that water skiing was going to make you any of those things? You started. No, No. it's just what's interesting. So when in doubt, be curious. Okay, number three is listening. And this quote is maybe my favorite. Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have rather talked. Okay, so most people, David, in my opinion, are pretty shit listeners. Have you thought about why that is?
1: Yeah, because it goes back to the first one, the humility, right? Because they're making their life all about them, mm. right? They want to be able to get their their word in edgewise. They want to be interesting. So there was a a, a famous story, and I think it's a story as opposed to a true event, famous story about uh, a lady who was invited just after the Second World War to go to dinner, this big fancy dinner, and Gandhi was on one side, Churchill was on the other side. She's sitting beside these two luminary leaders, wow. and after, she had a wonderful dinner with them both. And afterwards, one of her friends said, like, what was it like? You had Gandhi on one side and Churchill on the other side. It must have been amazing. And she said, Churchill, talked about the Second World War, but before that, the Boer War and the wilderness years. I've never met anyone who was more interesting. Mm. What was it like being beside Gandhi? Ah, I've never met anyone who was more interested in me. Mm -hmm. Well, who do you want to be? Uh, I mean, Churchill was an, a profoundly successful leader, clearly. right? Amazing. I'm not saying, not saying that being a good storyteller is not a good idea. But if we want to have an influence, uh, let's be the kind of people who are willing to listen to others and be interested. My my sister-in-law and brother-in-law from California, my wife and I want to be like Dean and Kathy because when, when Dean and Kathy are together, they want to know about you, and I want to be more like that.
0: Have you at times in your career been a bad listener? And, and, you you know, you say this is uh, retroactive advice. Have you, you know, what what were the moments in your career where you were a bad listener that made you put it in the book? And what did it cost you?
1: Well, first year on the job, I went to my uncle and my dad and said, "Uh, uh, Uncle Bob, you're 55. I presume you'd be retiring in 10 years at 65. So here are my five different options for my career development plan. Mm. And my uncle said it would need to be a 20-year development plan rather than 10. And my dad said, no, David can be ready in 10. uncle Bob said, no, take 20. If I had just listened to my uncle at that point... I might still be in that family company, but my because I was insistent I could be ready in ten. I ended up uh, putting things in such a bad trajectory with my uncle that he, 10 years later, he had a, a file 12 inches thick of all the things I'd done wrong to make sure he could hear David. He used to pat it when I go to see him. This is, I've got all the bad stuff on you here. Yeah. <laughs> and he eventually had me thrown out of the company. Right, right. It cost me my career. Just nothing major. Whoops. Um, you <laughs> mention a lot
0: in the book, how it helps you negotiate. Do you mm. want to do you want to talk about why why listening makes you a better negotiator?
1: Yeah, so some of our listeners may have come across uh, 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 Chester Karras. He's an expert on negotiation. I took Chester Karras' negotiating course probably before some of our listeners were born, twenty five years ago. And uh, but Chester Karras talks in negotiation how what we want to do is first of all let the other party know they're heard, mm. which is back to just being gracious but also then actually really want to understand them. Mm. So let's say you and I are having a negotiation, and at the end of the first day of negotiations, I've got clearly understood and can say back to you everything you're looking for. Yeah. And then day two, I say, Benji, uh, my understanding is these are the 17 things you need. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. We can get you all of those. How are you going to be? You're going to be pretty happy, pretty happy about happy. that, right? Yeah. Okay. I can get you all 17. Now, in order to do that, here, here's what I need. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's going to completely change things. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I also think that it is, I did an episode uh, a year ago on, on we just did a short one on active listening and mm-hmm. just the practice of it and how to make eye contact and how to lean in. And it was very, it was very like step by step. Like this is not just the why and the philosophical aspect of it, but this is literally how you, of, how you do in, it yeah. in, in a sales M- meeting, mirroring. in an interview, all, all this stuff. And the the point that I make about this, because I I come from a sales and marketing background is like, if you, if you really want to influence people, the easiest way to do that is not with more persuasive scripting. It's just with better listening in the first mm-hmm. place. And then when you go, okay, so here's what I need. They're just like uh, a lot yeah. more malleable. You've got yeah. them in the palm of your hand.
1: Well, and not only do you have them in the palm of your hand, but you actually genuinely
0: know what they are, need, know what on. they need. Yeah.
1: So yeah. You can make a deal. It works.
0: Okay. Number four is empathy. We all have empathy. We just may not have the courage to display it. So here's a knock-on question on that. Why does empathy require courage?
1: Well, we need to talk about what empathy is. Empathy is being with someone. And uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I, my wife and I have three daughters uh, and a son. They're all married now, so we've got, God willing, by October we'll have our 10th grandchild. So I've had lots of experience, you know, our kids are in their 30s and 40s, but... I've realized that my M.O. with the kids growing up was if they had a problem, I'd go, and I never said it out loud, but I thought, suck it up, buttercup, let's go do this, right? Because I was not wanting to be empathetic. They're having a problem. I'm going, forget the problem, let's do this to get past the problem. And the reason that I didn't want to do that was because I'm solution-oriented, et cetera, I would tell myself. But actually part of the reason that I didn't want to do that is being with someone in their pain means being in pain.
0: That's the part that needs courage.
1: Yeah, none of us want to do that. Right. When my wife is talking to me and she's feeling overwhelmed and she says to me, honey, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm going, well, have you made a to-do list? And let's get on with right? She just needs me to sit with her and to be with her in the pain. I don't want to be in the pain, hmm. but empathy requires us to be with. So say some, one of my best friends had his wife pass away just prior to his 60th birthday. Well, I didn't want to be in that pain. Right. But that's what empathy is. It's being with. So that takes courage. takes vulnerability.
0: Um, Sorry, that's you know, not a you know I am one. not particularly empathetic, uh, you know, April, my beloved April, will tell me quite frequently uh, sorry for oversharing, but I'm missing an empathy chip. Um, And you'll, and language. This is an empathy club. We got (laughs) right here going to the two of us. Well, you just say the exact same thing. I'm very solutions oriented. (laughs) Like, this is, you know, I hear you, but this is kind of getting long winded. Do we need to spend this much time on the feelings? Like, can we just get to the steps? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I just I, so when you say when you say, are oh, solutions oriented, or at least that's what I tell myself. Have, that's really have, resonated. Have with April,
1: me. have April Google. It's not about the nail. It's a tremendous video about a solution oriented. Our listeners can Google it. I mean, it's not, not about that. the nail, and uh, you know us guys. It, it's a it's a stereotype of guys who tend to just want to fix stuff, right? Right. That's not that's not what empathy is. Empathy is not fixing. Empathy is being with.
0: And why, why is it important in the context of an, of an organizational culture? We think of it, and we're talking about this maybe in like put it in the family context, the part the, the relationship, the romantic relationship context, the parenting context, in a business
1: though. Okay, well, let's go back to my uncle. Like we talked about me not listening. We talked about me not being curious. How about this? When my uncle said he wanted me to wait at least 20 years, if I had had just a modicum, of empathy. You know what I would have reflected on? What? My uncle had spent 30 years right. waiting for his turn to lead.
0: Right. He might actually know a thing or two.
1: Yeah. But if I just, thought how would it be for him to have this young upstart saying he can't wait 20 when he would had to wait 30? Like that was an insult, right? I was completely naive to that because there was zero empathy going on. <laughs> Okay, number five is. For- you see why I'm in the. I, you, I, you're 100%. laughing because you actually think I actually am in the remedial class. You get it. You are. I'm starting. <laughs> you weren't joking. Number five
0: is forgiveness. So this one surprises me. Why is forgiveness on the list?
1: And what like what are we? What does that to do for? with business? Yeah. With, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you talked about your beloved April, my wife Allison. Okay, so if you have a relationship with anybody, our four kids, our ten or nine, soon to be ten grandkids, if you have a relationship with your relationship with Matt at the company here, if we have a relationship with any other human being, they are going to let you down because they're imperfect. If someone lets you down, you have a choice to forgive them. Or have a relationship that is encumbered by either bitterness or disappointment that impairs your ability to move forward. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I played rugby all through high school and university. The guys that I played with, we all made mistakes. On the, I, I played with great. The other fourteen guys were great. We, but we all made, we all made mistakes, right? What are we going to do? We're going to harbor the mistakes, or are we going to let's figure out how to move forward. So, uh, if we are going to have relationships that work. We need to get past it. Can I put it in a family business yeah. context? I got a client to work with for many years, about 10 or 12 years, four brothers, and I wrote about them in the book, so they'll allow me to mention the name Plotkin. That Plotkin Health was the name of their family business. And these four brothers worked together. And I said, how do you make four brothers? Most people can't have two brothers work together. How'd you make four? And they said uh, we had kept short accounts. And I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, one of us screwed up one day or one of us got mad one day or whatever. The next day, new chapter. Right. Forg- let it go. Right. Let it go. Keep short accounts. We gotta let it go. What happens if we don't forgive, we carry the grudge. We carry the grievance. We carry the disappointment. We carry the frustration. Mm-hmm. And that pollutes the relationship. So-
0: I think um, there's a... There's a, uh, there's like competing narratives here because, you know, on this podcast that you happen to be listening to on this day, we're talking about forgiveness on another podcast with, you know, a bigger audience and like more qualified people. They'll say, you know, you got to be strict and you got to hold the line and blah, blah, blah. And so like, you can all, this is such what do you a mean paradox by holding the line? line. What, what, what? Well, okay. What I mean is like, you can also hear, uh, we're talking about forgiveness right now. You could also hear someone else go on and on about the importance of holding people accountable and being strict and being firm in your leadership. And I just wonder how we can maybe do both of these things, because I believe that's also true. But how do we do both? How do we like uh, well, maintain strict standards, yeah. Yeah. but also be forgiving?
1: Okay, so let's talk about accountability. So in my first book, I, I wrote about accountability because I have a A friendship with two other gentlemen who, and 35 years ago, we signed a covenant to help each other through life. And so they, they, they committed to me and I committed to them. We're going to try and help each other be better fathers, better husbands, et cetera. And we talked about keeping each other accountable. And I thought accountability was if you screw up, I hang you up by your fingernails. Right. That's not accountability. That's torture. Accountability, Where is it? what's the word accountant? What does an accountant do? An accountant gives an accounting of what happened, right? Here's the past year's results, here's the past quarter's result. An accountant gives an accounting. Not unlike a basketball game, we've got the basketball, NBA playoffs happening right now. So if you've got a, what do the scorekeepers do? They give an account. First period, scores 20 to 23. They're just giving an accounting of what happened. So let's talk about accountability, starting within a small, in a family context, and then we'll talk about it in a business context. What does is, what is accountability mean? If our We've got, talked about our kids a little bit. When our daughter Christy was young, and I said to her, sweetheart, here's ten, $20. Go to the corner store and get milk, bread, and eggs. Mm-hmm. And when you come back, bring me the milk, bread, and eggs, and the receipt, and the change, and give me, I didn't say give me an accounting, just make sure that it all reconciles She comes and she gives an account of what happened. So in business, I'm all for accountability. What accounting, it's not hanging people up by their fingernails. It's saying quarterly, monthly, weekly, whatever it is, annually, give an account for what you did. And if you sold, if I'm on boards of four companies, we want, our management team says, we're going to do this. We're going to go take this hill. Okay. When are you going to take the hill? Mm -hmm. In the first six months. Okay. Let's three months from now, let's talk about how we're doing. It's six months. So asking people to give an account is actually the job of good leaders.
0: So I think that's a very enlightened definition. I, I really appreciate the, us going on this tangent. I think most people—maybe I'm just—you know, I shouldn't say most people. I have misinterpreted accountability as this punitive exercise when really it's just a truth-seeking
1: Tell them, give me an account. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? Was it mean for me to ask our daughter, Christy, yeah. to give me the milk, good no, no, eggs, yeah. and the receipt and the money? Yeah. Just give an account. Right? Yeah. And if we do quarterly and monthly and annual accounting, if our management team, every year they show up with lousy results, they're going to understand why they don't have a job the next right, year. Right,
0: right. You yeah. don't actually need to do the, you, you, the torture
1: because it, it, it's, it's the... Here, here's the deal. The score is right we on want, the scoreboard. We want you to give an yeah. account of what you've done. That's really interesting. Um, you notice how it's actually full of actually coaching
0: opportunities, right? Totally, totally. I okay, let's move on let's move on to the next one, which is gratitude. Mm. Okay. Gratitude is the recognition that life owes me nothing and all the good I have is a gift. Love that. Do you think that uh, do you think that finding success in business makes us le- less grateful?
1: Yes and no. <laughs> yes. Because if we become used to our prosperity or our success, we can become the new normal becomes expected, right? If last year I earned 100 grand, this year I earned 150 grand, next year I earned 250 grand, I'm, I get used to what I earn, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I'm not grateful for the 250. I don't get a raise from 250 to two, to 290. I forget that I used to only be paid 100. So our success, Makes us immune to the good uh, results that, that we already are have. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's the yeah. You say yes, it can. But you also said no. How how can it all? How, like, how can we it, f- have success, re- like meteoric success, but still keep that gratitude in check?
1: Focus on being grateful. So, so what I mean to say, yes and no. It, it can lead, uh, uh, our success can lead us to step over what we have and mm. lo- and we can become f- comfortable, but it doesn't mean we have to. Mm-hmm. It, so it's a temptation, frankly, right? right? So for an example, if, uh, you know, my, I had, we, t- we talked earlier about the fact that uh, a few years ago, my wife, uh, on my on one of my birthdays took me to the store to buy a new car for me for that year and she wanted me to have a Jag. So it was wonderful for a couple of years, we drove a Jag and it was wonderful. Um, but then there came a time when my wife Alice and I decided for a couple of reasons uh, that to have her mom come and live with us. She can't get into the Jag just to sit. It's too low. Right. So we bought a different car. There were other reasons, but we bought a different car. We bought a Ford Escape. So I drive a Ford Escape. And it, I, I had real trouble with that. I had real trouble with that. Back to the humility thing,
0: because you right. were like, "I'm this established businessman, yeah, like, like I'm right. driving a Ford so, Escape." This yeah. is,
1: but you know what helped me the most? My grandpa, the first decision my grandpa made when he bought Dominion Construction in 1912 was to sell the company Cadillac and buy a Ford. Huh. And so I thought, you know, if Grandpa can drive a Ford, I can drive a Ford. Yeah. And so I think we we, we it, it's our self talk, Benji. It's what do we tell ourselves? Mm-hmm. And the self talk I traded in the I should be driving a Jag for the if Grandpa could drive a Ford, I can drive a Ford. So we, you know, the other. If I can just go on this just for one more yeah. moment. If you have, and our listeners, if our listeners, if you have seven hundred thousand dollars in net worth, you are in the top one percent in the world in net assets. I'm imagining that most of our listeners do not think about themselves as one percenters. They think, yeah, but that's, but that's in North, in North America you'd have to have, yeah, I totally get it. But of the over 6 billion people in the world, if you have six, $700,000, you're in the top 1% of the world. If you, and I keep telling myself this is one day I was at a lunch with four other people. They were all billionaires. I'm not a billionaire. I'm at this lunch and I'm feeling like a total loser. And I get in the car on the way home and I'm going, there's something wrong with how I'm looking at a life when I'm in the top one percent in the world and I'm saying I'm unhappy. So we need to count our blessings or count right rather than looking at what we don't have. It's as simple as that.
0: Well, you can always find it if that if if you're if you're training your lens to look for your own gaps, you're always going to find. You're There's always, always going to be someone you're with always, more. You're always going to find someone with more. Exactly. Do you do you recommend people do like a daily gratitude practice? Yeah, yeah. My, so written, my, so something my, spoken. Like it, what's
1: My sister's 36 years into recovery as an alcoholic, so she's learned a lot at the University of Life called AA. And she, it's a good and, school. Yeah, yeah, and she told me that she was working on her gratitude list every morning. I said, "What do you do with that?" She said, "I write out three things on my gratitude list and either phone or email one of my friends it's a little deal we have every day so I started my gratitude list Mm. Uh, and uh, humility prevents me from telling you what number I'm at Mm. but I've been doing it for several years and it's I I can tell you this I remember when I got to 1094 Mm. I started thinking differently
0: like on the list, on 1,094 yeah. items on the list. Uh, I, yeah. sta- I
1: started, it became a habit. I started to, to default to being more grateful. Makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, it's so good. Uh, where are we at? Six, seven, Okay, so number seven is critical thinking. Okay, so David, people say this all the time. You hear people rant about this. We're talking about, you know, a few years ago, people were concerned about. You know, YouTube having too much information. You can Google everything at your fingertips. Now we have, now we have uh, AI sort of changing the game again, which is uh, really bringing um, the concern is people's ability to problem solve and critically think is being reduced by technology. Do you believe that to be true?
1: Well, I think it it can be. It's a bit like the last one. It can be. Just gratitude, you know, and critical thinking. They're both. We have choices around this because. Just because you can Google anything or everything you want to Google doesn't mean you have to. Right. So it's a choice. But I think uh, uh, let me talk about critical thinking this way. Uh, when, uh, oh, World Economic Forum Davos, Switzerland, just recently, Jack Ma was asked, "What are we doing? What are we going to teach our kids given AI, given all that's happening? What do we need to teach our kids?" He said, "We need to teach them critical thinking." Mm-hmm because it's the machine can't do critical thinking A machine can do thinking faster mm-hmm. but it can't do critical thinking mm-hmm. so the integration so what i would suggest is that We need to clarify that critical thinking is actually even more important now because it differentiates us from the machines. So, how do we do that? Uh, Critical thinking—it's fascinating to me because Walt Disney is one of my heroes, uh, and uh, he's someone who I learned about critical thinking from. You know, most people think of Disney as either as a cartoonist or as a guy who created theme parks or a movie uh, uh, animator. He was all those things, Mm -hmm. but at his core, he was a dreamer and a visionary, and a critical thinker. Mm -hmm. And his critical thinking led him to always ask, have we got it right? For example, most people have been to the Pirates of the Caribbean. When it was just about opened. he had it all sorted, and they were doing test driving, the the boats, and he wasn't sure it was quite right. So he got 20 people together from all different uh, levels in the hierarchy and said, does it look right? Does it smell right? Mm -hmm. Does it sound right? Does it feel right? Mm -hmm. Critical thing, He's asking the questions. And one of the young guys, a junior member of the team said, Mr. Disney, I grew up in the South. And on a night like this, there would be lightning bugs. That's what's missing. Disney said, you're right. And so you know what they did? They actually imported live lightning bugs and (laughs) had them flying around the ride until they could make robotic lightning bugs. Walt Disney was not criticizing anybody. Mm. He was exercising critical thinking, Mm. asking, does it smell right? Does it look right? Does it feel right? That's what critical thinking is about. It's not criticizing.
0: Well, you've backed into this thing that I wanted to ask you, which you mentioned in this chapter of the book, which is the difference between critical thinking and critical spirit. So maybe actually that, okay, let's define sure. both. Let, we've talked a little bit without actually giving a definition. Do you have a simple sentence or two to define critical thinking? Sure. And then once you do that, what's critical spirit and why should we sort of approach Critical thinking is
1: being systematic about our problem solving, right? When I was at UBC Commerce 492, I'll never forget. the Define the problem. Mm-hmm. List alternative ways of solving the problem. Evaluate the pros and cons of, of that each. and make a decision. Right. That's critical thinking at its simplest, right? It's being systematic. Or my mentor, Dick Myers, who we talked about earlier, Dick Myers would say, collect information until the decision makes itself. So th- that's that's what critical thinking looks like. Okay. So uh, what is a critical spirit? A critical spirit is criticizing people. Mm. So uh, there's a, uh, a firm in Alberta, a land... Uh, 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 Britland and Engagement's the name of the company, and uh, the founders of that company have decided that in their company they're going to be hard on ideas and soft on people. Uh, when I was growing up, I was hard on people. Mm-hmm. And so you notice Walt Disney in the example with the Pirates of the Caribbean, he was asking hard questions about ideas but not critical of people. And so I got them all blurred. I was critical of people. Do they come packaged
0: like no. often in people? No. Do, do, do critical thinkers often, no. unless interv- unless yes. they've learned something, yes. come with some critical spirit? Also, yes. Yes, yeah. I mean
1: there, there there's an iconic leader who I will not mention who makes products that we all uh, are. Uh, very fond of that. He was very, very hard on his people. Right. He was demanding about the products being right, but I think he s- slipped over into being hard on the people. We don't have to. We don't have to have both.
0: I think that's such a good soundbite: hard on ideas, but soft, soft on, on people. people. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you, when you separate the thinking from the person, it's pretty easy to dismantle the thinking without hurting the feelings, but it's, it's, it's actually requires a much more sort of cerebral and forward thinking approach to doing it. Cause it's not, it's not hard to go from critical thinking to being hard. It's, it's like, yeah. it's the change of one word or framing a sentence yeah, yeah. slightly differently. And we're often moving fast and we're pressed for time. So it's, it's, a, it's an extremely easy it's a habit. ditch to drive it's a, it's into. A, it's a habit, right? Yeah.
1: It, it, it's you always, rather than, um, you always do such and such, which is being critical of a person, right? Saying, I think we've got a problem here. What is the problem? Have you heard of the problem in the glass? No. So our daughter, Christy, and her husband, Steve, went to a counselor, and he was helping them to try and resolve problems rather than fighting each other how to work together to solve the problem. So he said, take the problem and put it in the glass. There's the problem on the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a disagreement about how to spend money. Let's us together, side by side, look at the problem in the glass. Right. There's the problem. It's not you. There's the problem in the glass. We don't agree on how to spend money. Okay, there's the problem. How can we resolve that? Isn't that beautiful? It puts it out there. It's not between you and me. It's out there. We could be together on it.
0: I think there's a couple things you said that I want to pick up. Uh, One is having, I don't know how you, the way that I phrase this is um, having a nuanced understanding of the problem first, which I don't think that many people do. I think people rush to solutions or think they get it before they fully comprehend the layers of...
1: Something well, can I, can and they
0: try and they try to put so they end up doing band aid solutions or they do quick fixes or they do half baked stuff that really isn't addressing the core or doesn't, issues
1: it, or doesn't get the core issues doesn't get to the root problem. When I, when I this commerce 492 class we were told the very most important thing you need to do in critical thinking is to look for the root problem. Yeah, that's what I'm and saying. So in, I mean, in most all, people don't. We had, we had a little t- we had teams. And so the three of us who did our. We went to companies so we and had to try and find a problem and find out what the root problem was below the surface problem. And we actually had thirteen different problem definitions till we got to the root problem. Yeah. So yeah. We, we we often start. Maybe some people are wise enough to go to the second level, but often there's the problem Beneath Much
0: that better. one, yeah. beneath that one, yeah. And then the other thing that I, I wondered if you could maybe talk about bringing this back to the business sphere is is pushing critical thinking to the team. There's a very common situation that, um, like our entrepreneurs, our listeners find themselves mm-hmm. in, which mm-hmm. is they they've coined the term in a really popular book that everyone has read called "Traction," called mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. "Visionary" and a mil- the "Visionary with a Million Helpers." Yes. So yes. there's like one bright thinking person and then there's all these sort of task doers or administrators or or, or worker bees around them, but not, there's, there's not enough um, critical thinking that's been decentralized from the visionary, which is a huge problem because going back to something you said earlier, like if it's just you, that's a pretty low ceiling. Have you seen effective ways, practical steps to push critical thinking to other parts, push it down the organization? So it's not just you.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think of Nordstroms, and I think of uh, of um, uh, other corporations. Let's start with let start with Nordstroms. You know, they invited all of their employees, and still do, to solve the customers' problems as if they were an owner. You know, and you, you somebody orders a new suit for a special event, a wedding or a gala dinner, and the suit is not ready when they come to pick it up. This events that evening, they've gone back to work. They came in the morning at 9 o'clock and they couldn't get it. What does the employee do? It's now ready at 4.30. The dinner's at 7. What do they do? They hop in a cab or hop on a bike and take the suit and deliver it. Mm-hmm. Do they need to ask for approval to do that? No, act like an owner, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's why so many people are fans, and I am as well, of ESOP programs, Employee Share Ownership Program. Right? How do you get people to behave like owners? Make them uh, owners, Right.
0: Um, I'll give you another one. Think that- about WestJet. You
1: know, wait, 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 the the pilots coming into the into the into the air into the plane to help clean up the garbage so they can turn around in twenty minutes. Yeah,
0: right. I'll tell you another one that is just a quick, quick fire piece of advice. Is uh, I say this a lot with my team. You're really smart. What do you think? Nice. Yeah. And then just hand, and then just listen. Yeah. And like, if they're newer. 30% of their ideas might be good. If they're senior, 80% of their ideas might be good. You're always gonna have sort of like a mix of, of of what's what's useful and what isn't. But the point is you're pushing the critical thinking away from you in the first place. And you'd be blown away at not only the good stuff that you get back, but it's more of like the feeling in the building, the vibe you create with the people that you work with when you're doing that. It, it gives them a sense of ownership and it makes them feel super involved. So I, I love that critical thinking piece. And going back to the tech question, um, you know, we're a long way away from all like critical thinking, like as a way you describe it being done. We might be able to think faster, but this stuff that you're talking about is I think uniquely ours for a while yet. Okay. Number eight of nine is patience. The key to everything is patience. You get the chicken by hatching the egg, not by smashing not by smashing it. What impact do impatient leaders have on their teams?
1: Well, that's a Warren Buffett quote there. I just, I love how he says the key to everything. Everything is patience. So do you know what his first job was? I I,
0: I don't off he, the top of my head, but it was something it was a very lowly position. No, no, it
1: wasn't even he would go to the racetrack. No, he'd go to the well, yes, he was maybe that was his maybe that was his first job. One of his first jobs. He would go to the racetrack. And when people had a ticket and it didn't get the winning horse, they would often throw, throw it, it up in disgust, yeah, yeah. but but they might have placed second or third, so there was money in that ticket, and he they would throw the tickets. He would go under the bleachers, uh, spit and gum spit and, and spilled beer and spill beer all, and he disgusting. would and he pick up all of those tickets. Yeah, and that's where he would take them in, and he would claim the money. That required patience. I mean, it grew, a few other things, right? But it required patience, ingenuity and all those things. But you notice, so here's a guy who started with nothing and he was collecting soggy beer-soaked tickets. That requires patience. Mm-hmm. So when he says the key to everything is patience, he's talking about something he knows about. And of course, he's bu- he buys companies. You're not buying them based on their prospects for the future, he's buying them based on whether they have a prospect for the future. He's looking at what is, not what might be. And so I think we need to uh, think about that in terms of how we look at our employees and how we look at new opportunities, even our customers. So how does it if I think about it in terms of our employees, if we lack it, I think that's what you're wanting to get at. Mm-hmm. What happens when we lack it? You know what happens for if, if we if we lack patience, we're going to do it ourselves rather than have the patience to let someone else learn how to do do it. You talk about a a guy with a bright idea and a thousand helpers or Mm -hmm. a million helpers. If I'm trying to do everything myself, uh, it's because I don't have the patience to let other people learn or let them fail while they're learning. Mm -hmm. So I think that we become... It's fascinating. The the former head of of, um, Ogilvy Advertising in New York was being interviewed and he had on his on his windowsill, those Russian dolls, you know, the big one, the littler, smaller, smaller, smaller one. And he said, and the the person interviewing said, What do you got those dolls there? And he said, to remind me that if I hire someone who's just a little bit smaller than me, and they hire someone who's just a little bit smaller than them, we'll become a company of midgets. <laughs> but he said, if I hire someone who's just a little bit smarter than me, and they hire someone who's just a little bit mm-hmm. smarter than them, we'll become a company of giants. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if, if we don't have the patience to let other people grow, we're going to become companies of midgets. Do you do you
0: have any advice for getting over the fear of hiring someone smarter than you? I think a lot of people, subcom- it's not even explicit thought, we'll go back, not thinking back to, about it on a conscious level, but they're scared.
1: This back, person's too good. Back to the first item, humility. Get over yourself. There was a, it was a comedian who said, if you're going to... It was Expo eighty six. He was here talking. He said, "Raise, raise your hand if you are married." And he said, "Congratulations!" Then all the rest of you raise your if you want to get married, raise your hand. So, and and he said, "Now, God, everyone put down their hands Guys who want to who who want to get married, put up your hands." So, half the room was single guys putting up their hands. And he said, "Just want you guys to know if you want to get married and you want to stay married." You're gonna to need to have a machoectomy. And everybody said, What's that? He said, A machoectomy? You need to learn to get over yourself. <laughs> right? And so. It if, sounds painful. Yeah, it sounds painful. But, you know, if if we are going to make it anywhere in the world, we need to get over ourselves, which go back to the humility, right?
0: One of the things just on patience, quick, um, you know, when you hire capable, smart people, um, they are often impatient because they're capable and smart. And often they, driven. They're yeah. Driven. Yeah. What's your advice for leaders to lead people who have natural talent, tons of charisma, lots of gifts, God-given drive. All of those are good things by the way, but it does come with the you know the asterisks beside it, which is these people are often impatient. They often want more than they're entitled to faster than you think they should be. How do you kind of like? How do you like corral those people?
1: Well, first of all, I think what I'd, I'd like to just talk about the word "driven" and "drive." I actually think being having drive is a positive thing. That means willing to work hard, willing to put in the extra. That's a great thing. I actually, my daughter and I, Jen, disagree on this. I think drivenness is actually unhelpful. Interesting, because I, I, I personally, it's my own philosophy. Sorry, Jen, if you're listening. I, I think drivenness. Think about drivenness. In in its um, relating to a car, you and I are in a car, Mm -hmm. and you are driving the car. Then I'm being driven. Mm -hmm. So you are in control. I'm being driven by you. If we are driven, Mm -hmm. we're not in control. Interesting. Being driven, we're actually we're either driven because we're obsessed or neurotic or or fearful or insecure Mm -hmm. or overly ambitious or arrogant. Like we thought, drivenness leads to those things. If we have inner drive, fantastic. Driven this means we're not in control, we're being driven by something. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. I think that I think about my water ski coach has encouraged me to be not confident, be competent. Right. So we so I think it's subtle in that same way. So I, so I think what's my advice for working with people yeah. who are driven? Encourage them to get in smell the roses. Right. Because being being driven ain't any good for anybody.
0: Number nine, and we'll close it out on this one. It's a good one. Contentment. He who is not content with what he has would not be content with what he would like to have either. Um, so in my experience, and I'm, I'm talking about myself uh just talking about a drive a second ago, this is related this concept of being like a goalpost mover. So you'll set a goal for yourself and you'll say, when I have X, Y, Z, all these other problems will go away or I'll be happy or I'll feel fulfilled or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot, le- I think that there's like an inescapable nature of being an entrepreneur where you're going to be a goalpost mover. I heard a quote the other day on LinkedIn, um, which is like, if you don't read something that you wrote two years ago and think it's crap, you're not moving fast enough. Yeah. yeah. And I like that. Yeah. I posted it and you know, the comments were like, well, you know, you're being too hard on yourself. And some people say absolutely hundred percent. I agree. So obviously it's, it's sort of a, it's a question of where you come down on it. But, um, when it comes to ambition and contentment and goalpost moving, how do we find contentment and inner peace and enjoyment and joy while keeping that ambition? Can you do both at the same time?
1: Yeah. So we have to go back. We have to go back a couple steps to gratitude, right? If we are anchored in gratitude, we can still try and move the goalposts. If we are anchored in gratitude, if, anch- if we are patient, we can still move the goalposts. We just might need to change the time frame. My view is that if we lack contentment, we can become obsessive. So I I was obsessive. That's why I've written about it. I, I was obsessed. Think about it. I talked to you earlier about how my, my uncle wanted me to wait until 20 years to become president of the company. I said, no, unless I can get it in 10. I mean, it sounds so childish. I wanted in 10. Like, what the heck was I thinking? Are you familiar with the, the name Fisk Johnson or SC Johnson? So, yep. SC Johnson, they own Johnson Wax, sure. but they also own Ziploc bags and RAID and all kinds of things. Fisk Johnson became president and CEO of that company. But he was willing to be patient. That's one of his traits. But he was also willing to be content with the journey. His dad, Sam, was such a powerhouse leader. Fisk said, "If I go and work with that, I'm going to blow this thing up because he and I are never going to get along." So, what did what did Fisk Johnson do? He went and got an undergrad degree, physics, and then he got a master's degree in physics. Then he thought, "Well, we're going to business. I may why not take an a, 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 an MBA as well?" Mm-hmm. And then why not take a PhD in physics? Mm-hmm. He took six earned degrees so that he could not butt heads with his dad. He was content with his lot. He could have spent his whole life complaining about his dad being too strong a leader, not room for him. Instead, he was content with his lot in life. And he said, I'm going to go to school and learn. Now he's president of an $11 billion a year company or whatever it is. (laughs) But he was willing to be content with his lot in life rather than being lacking contentment. And can I talk about one other example? Yeah. Because I was fascinated. I don't know how many of our listeners are basketball fans, but I, I am. So. I, 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 I was fascinated watching when the Toronto Raptors uh, went on their magical run. The best. It was, it was amazing, right? And Kawhi Leonard, of course, was the- You can't speed was, him up. Uh, what, what, you can't you, what? You can't speed him up. No.
0: Speaking of patience, yeah. he plays the game at his own pace.
1: Yeah, but what's interesting, he plays the game at his own pace, but I'm, I want to talk about contentment. I watched him very closely because I'd never watched him before.
0: Oh, he's amazing. He
1: totally amazing. A, a superstar, yes, but- did you notice if he got a great shot, he was not overly celebratory? No. Did you notice if he missed a shot, missed yes, a shot okay. no. he was not down? Why? He was content to give his best. That's what enabled him to be even-keeled and to lead that team to a championship. I want to be the kind of leader, I'm hoping our listeners will want to be the kind of leaders where they, if they give 100%, they're good with They'll that. They'll be content. Yeah. Some people say, we got to give 110%. That's actually nonsense. You can't give 110%. I want every, we want to give 100%. Last example on that, my water ski coach went to the world, sorry, the U.S. National Water Ski Championships. He was the second to top seed. So he skied second to last. Mm-hmm. Top seeds got to ski last. He went out and skied. He skied a lifetime personal best, and he set a new U.S. record. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. Good day. He'd been doing this for 45, 45 years. Absolutely thrilling, right? Mm-hmm. The next guy out, when next guy just out to Skeeter, half a buoy better. Yeah. So could he be content? He said, David, there's something completely wrong with me if I can't be content with the best I've ever done in my life and a U.S. record, even if I only had it for five minutes. I think we have this obsessive, no, you should, you, you should be sad because you came second, first loser. I, I think there's actually a better way of living.
0: Um, I love the Kawhi analogy and I, I feel the exact same way. The guy doing it right now is Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets yeah. are going to yeah. go win as a result. <laughs> let's hope so. so. good. so um, good. Let's leave it at that. Final question. Any like... Closing words of advice for growing leaders. We did a big, sprawling yeah, conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. of nine trades. Any just like final, succinct advice for growing leaders? Yeah.
1: what I, If I could ask our leader, our listeners to, uh, who are leaders to do one thing, create your own virtual hall of fame. I've got Disney. I've got Nelson Mandela. I've got um, people. We've already talked about Benjamin Franklin and uh, Einstein. Uh, I would invite our our listeners to build your own personal hall of fame. Who do you want to be like? Study those people and let them rub off on you.
0: That's a great place to close. I love it. Thank you so much for being here, David. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.